Welcome to What's Your Beef? What's Your Beef is proudly supported by Suncorp Bank, helping local producers through the ups and downs since 1902. Each week we will introduce you to people working in the beef industry and some of the characters that help deliver the iconic event that is Beef Australia. Hello, this is What's Your Beef, proudly supported by Suncorp Bank, and I'm Jane Cudahy. In this episode, we're chatting with Owen William, a self-confessed beef enthusiast and modern pioneer of the Australian organic industry. He's been working in the certified organic industry for 20 years, having provided auditing, training and consulting services to farmers in 15 countries, putting him in the perfect position to be the technical guy at the peak body for organic farmers and handlers, Australian Organic Limited. On a personal level, he's also known to eat a predominantly beef diet, a concept I'm sure is music to the ears of many of our listeners. Thanks so much for joining us, Owen. Thanks for having me, Jane. Oh, no, it's a delight. I'm actually a bit spoiled for choice with a starting point for this conversation. As usual, we'll start at the beginning, and I love the fact that you completed the same degree as both of your parents. Those dinner table conversations must have been pretty inspiring for you. Uh, Yeah, and the... And sadly, the content was also very similar. Um, oh no! Thirty years later, <laughs> twenty years later, yeah. So, what made you want to do? It? We'll go into we'll go into the content because you know I'm sure that that's a bit of time between when your parents did it and you did it, um, and I, and that sort of moves everything else forward. But why did you want to do the same degree? Um, I was a bit unsure at the time, as most uh, kids are at that age. Um, but I kept coming back to um, my interest in the environment and in food production. And I grew up on small farms, so I was comfortable in the country. And um, I wasn't totally sure I wanted to work in agriculture, but certainly in science. So science and agriculture at Sydney Uni seemed like a good direction. And uh, it was good, although it, it sort of cemented my decision to go down the organic path um, because of the complete lack of information about organic farming in that degree. You mentioned that it was the same content th- that your parents did, and I guess that marries in with what you were about to say as well, but what what was in there that you found that you had to really question? The content was very similar. In fact, a couple of the lecturers were still the same. Oh, beautiful. Uh, they were really getting on. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> uh, so we had one half of one lecture on organic farming in the whole four-year degree, um, but I was fortunate in that some of my peers were also interested in organic or alternative farming, at least. And we um, we set up our own little group and and had sort of lunchtime sessions where we delivered uh, information on organic or biodynamic or holistic management. One of my peers at uni, uh, his father was was Bruce Ward, who ran the centre for holistic management in Australia and um, he kindly offered for me and a few peers to actually go and do the full holistic management course for free and that was really um, important in hindsight that was really important in terms of the of my career direction. And so when you're talking about holistic and organic um, they're they're married similar concepts but then that's quite different to regenerative isn't it? Uh, well, holistic management back then, and I, it's still fairly common terminology, holistic grazing management um, is more of like a decision-making process um, based on goal setting for but aimed at farmers and aimed at graziers. So uh, it's not necessarily organic. Um, it's one of the many different 
it includes one of the many different iterations of some sort of rotational grazing, like time-controlled grazing or adaptive multi-paddock grazing or under all or cell grazing. Your listeners may have heard of. So holistic management was was one of the versions of that back then, uh, not necessarily organic, but it was um, the focus on rotational grazing, high-intensity grazing for short periods of time, and then allowing a recovery period for the pasture. I found really interesting and really really obvious actually very logical in terms of the way that biological growth happens it's a sigmoid growth curve so you would want to have your pasture as productive as possible so in the steep part of the curve for as as much of the time as you can whereas at the university we were being taught set stocking and total kill and so one type of pasture at massive cost Um, and obviously wasn't working when we went on our field trips to the university farm and other farms that were using this these um, intensive, high-input, high-cost, uh, uh, and then set stocking grazing strategies that just weren't working. It was just—it was really quite laughable that, that that's what they were still teaching. And, I, and it is sometimes the, the biggest, most well-respected institutions that are the last to change. And I think that's where Sydney Uni was at that point 20 years ago. You really found your place in the organic concept. So, how did that shape your next steps? There wasn't much of a career path in organic farming other than, than um, starting something up, which I wasn't ready to do at that point, other than in the certification field, which was still really a fairly new thing. I didn't necessarily think it was going to be a career path, but I was able to start, straight out of uni, I was able to start doing farm inspections for organic certification. They really just threw me in the deep end and I was driving around the countryside visiting organic farms and, and uh, completing the audit checklists and the grower interviews and I was sometimes in way over my head. <laughs> and when you're at that was, age um, too, <laughs> when you're at that age, you just bluff. Like I can remember a few things and I started as a journalist very young and people would just sort of call you bluff knowing full well probably that you had no idea what you were doing but you were so young that you're like, yeah, I can do it. It's fine. I know exactly what I'm talking yeah. about. <laughs> Fake it till you make it. Yeah, well, yeah. fortunately with... Fortunately, with organic certification, there's a really detailed standard that you can fall back to. And this was at that time as well? There was at that time, yeah. Yeah. Uh, The the National Standard for Organic and Biodynamic Produce was worked on through the 80s, and um, and I'm not quite that old, but uh, yeah. So fortunately, I could always fall back on the standard, and to a certain extent, I could sort of play dumb as as an auditing method and say, okay, so explain this to me. (laughs) (laughs) You You had a security blanket. Yeah, and then so I was able to do lots of uh, inspections throughout Australia um, for people's organic certification, and I learned a lot through that process uh, to the point where I then started uh, consulting and helping people with helping people prepare and maintain their organic certification because yeah. there wasn't a lot of services available. Well, there still aren't many consulting services available for people wanting to go down the organic certification path. And so that was organic advice, wasn't it? That was your company that you started. And when you say that there's not very many consultants, is that improving like as the industry grows or it's just one of those little things? We still need more. It's a fairly complicated and it's very broad the, the organic certification can apply to, uh, you know, broadacre cropping or intensive horticulture or extensive grazing and right through the process. It's the whole of supply chain certification as well, so food processing, food handling. So there's sort of a lot to know. And so there's still a bit of a shortage of know-how. Uh, and, and the certification bodies themselves, are they're sort of not really allowed to give advice as such. They, they're, they, they can um, help you interpret the standard and understand the rules, but they can't really suggest ways 
to comply because they're supposed to be very independent, very third-party uh, auditing of your processes. So there's certainly more room for um, for consultants in that space to, to help people prepare for certification and maintain the certification. So you you know you took this on at that time, um, and you said that it wasn't so much of a career choice then, but it turned into that. Like you ended up going all over the world with that. So what were the next steps, and what did you learn through that process of, of having a look at what other people were doing? Yeah, so it really did become a career path, but it sort of it wasn't when I started. But looking back, uh, I'm, I'm now you know I'm still working in the industry more at standards development and maybe policy type stuff, less with day to day certification. But yeah, I was uh, very lucky. I've been to hundreds of farms, not just in Australia, but throughout most of the Asia Pacific, pre-government travel restrictions, um, the last five years working mostly in, in Asia and the Pacific. So that was just hugely eye-opening, seeing how lots of people choose to farm and, and choose to live and the challenges that they face um, was, yeah, really life-changing. But I, I'm glad to be back and obviously sort of stuck here now like we all are. Um, <laughs> I'm sure there's plenty to do in wonderful places here that you can visit too. Yeah, well, my role now, I can work from home anyway, so that's good. Um, my, my role as uh, technical Chief Technical Officer at Australian Organic Limited is um, certainly keeping me very busy at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess just while, you know, we're talking about AOL, the Australian organics industry doesn't have mandatory domestic organic standards. So when you're talking about certification and then the fact that there's no national standards, what difference would that make to your certified beef producers if if those standards were able to be brought in? Yeah, so in Australia, we at, at the moment, we don't have a legally enforced standard for what it means to call some some produce organic however we have had we're actually one of the the early earliest countries to have a national standard ours is the national standard for organic and biodynamic produce but that standard was only ever enforced funnily enough for export so it is uh, empowered through the uh, export control act the rules for implementation just being updated at the moment so it has been it's basically been renewed that will remain we, we have a if you want to export some agricultural produce with the trade description organic or biodynamic, uh, you need to be certified according to this national standard. However, Australian consumers aren't actually protected in the same way. But fortunately, um, the big buyers like the wholesalers and the supermarkets over the last 20 years have kind of adopted that export standard as a de facto domestic standard. So it's worked reasonably well, but it's effectively self-regulated industry in Australia currently. It's worked reasonably well. However, there are still... I did a supermarket walk around, and I don't actually do that very often because, as we might discuss, I only eat meat. But, um, I did <laughs> we'll also get to that. Don't through. worry. It's got a big start <laughs> next to that point. <laughs> I did the, the full walk through the supermarket locally, and there are still a lot of products that um, have, have organic have an organic claim and the label that may or may not be certified and may or may not be compliant to that standard. So uh, something that we've been working on is um, sort of, I guess you could say, lobbying or at least promoting the idea of the benefits from having an enforceable domestic standard. And from our point of view, it would be that same standard, the national standard for organic and biodynamic produce, which is already referenced in existing legislation, although only for export. Um, and we believe that applying that domestically as well would uh, would protect consumers um, and uh, make it more of a level playing field out there 
And funnily enough, it'll actually also improve our export market access. Even though technically exports already covered, um, the perception for, with some major trading partners overseas, the, their perception, and, and they've stated it in writing, is that you don't even have a domestic standard. We're not even talking to you about an equivalence arrangement like a, like a trade agreement until you have that. So, yeah, the, it seems like a no-brainer to try to uh, have a, a domestically enforceable uh, standard and to make it the same one as the export standard just for simpler to, to keep it simple. So, yeah, I, I feel like I'm being extremely naive here, but and you, you just said it was felt like a no-brainer as well, but why is it so hard to get that, that standard brought in when our labelling rules are so strict to start with across any number of commodities? Uh, well, I don't know how the, the process of um, getting legislation through... It just hasn't been picked up by the right people? Is that what it I think comes so, yeah. down I think to? Exactly that, the... The industry hasn't had a strong single body representing it before. So with Australian Organic Limited, and especially since we demerged from the certification body, so we're a totally separate uh, company from the certification body that uh, as of two years ago, um, now we can really act as an industry body and support government and highlight some of the benefits of this. And that's what we've been doing for the last couple of years. And recently, the, uh, the federal government have now started a, a working group to, to look at this as as a potential work item, which is just fantastic. That was announced only a few weeks back, but there was an industry working group being put together that would investigate whether we should look into an enforceable domestic standard, and that's now underway. So uh, what comes out of that? We will be available to help them with any of the technical market access type issues and to try to think of what might go wrong and preventing that. Um, But we're pretty confident that we're going to have an enforceable domestic standard in, I mean, I don't want to over, overstate it. I guess it could still take, you know, a year or two or, or whatever, but it's looking good. Yeah, amazing. And so what percentage of the Australian market is organic beef? Do you know? It's still tiny. Uh, it's still, you know, single-digit percentage in terms of popularity. here. However, the, the whole 20 years that I've been working in the industry, we've been seeing in dollar terms uh, double-digit percentage growth year on year for 20 years. And is that for beef? Specifically? Uh, no, that's across all sectors. Yeah, well, that's very and encouraging. And beef is one of our biggest exports. So organic beef into the United States is very popular. That's so in terms of export dollars, beef, is, organic beef is one of the best. Yeah. yeah. And now, but, you know, the big question in the room is um, sort of moving off the, the technical side of things a little bit. But you have chosen to basically your whole diet is beef. <laughs> yeah, and the first time I heard about sort of carnivore diet, uh, like most people, I was just like, oh, that's ridiculous. Um, Did you eat a lot of meat before this? Did, like, you know, on an average week, would you... I was actually vegetarian for a couple of years <laughs> back in uni. Um, but, yeah, I was doing kind of... I had a few health problems, and I was sort of doing, I guess, like a paleo thing, so still lots of vegetables, and I was growing... I grow a heap of my own food, so... Uh, still having a lot of fruit and vegetables and meat, but still having some health issues. And, and then did sort of more the keto, low-carb, high-fat thing and saw some huge benefits from that for, for me and, and friends and family who also tried it. Um, and then, the but yeah, the idea of basically eating only animal products started to pop up. And it, funnily enough, it was some, some people who I really respect in different fields, some of the smartest people I've ever come across who are all doing this. And I was just like, what is going on? Um, and so, yeah. So I'm now, it's almost three years, and I'm, yeah, 95%, I would say, uh, animal-based diet. 
and um, healthier and fitter than I've ever been. I started growing muscles. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's amazing. I guess you know, and this is probably a bit controversial considering you know our our um, podcast is on the beef industry. But as a as a vegetarian and someone who traditionally didn't eat a lot of red meat. Ethically, when you're up against this and it's for health reasons and I guess that's your main motivator, how did that sit with you? Oh, well, it's fine because, like, the whole mainstream sort of rhetoric that we're bombarded with about cows being, cattle being bad for the environment and for your health is I, I obsessively research things and I looked into that stuff and it's, it's totally bogus. Like, cattle are, you know, the only type of food you can produce in most of the world, like in, in arid areas that you can't go cropping, like, but you can grow cattle. And, you know, humans can't eat grass. Um, cattle have a rumen. They can digest grass. So all you need is sunlight and some moisture. And thanks to the magic of photosynthesis, grass grows. And thanks to the magic of a ruminant herbivore, they can eat that grass and they can turn it into the best food in the world. Like beef is, red meat especially, muscle meat and organs are the the most nutrient-dense food known to man, you know, in, in the top of that that list. And not only that, but they're, they're lowest in toxins. Um, so, you know, it's, it really is the best food you can eat. <laughs> are you going to go into marketing for maybe some of our beef bodies soon? I feel like you've I'd got this. I'd love to. I feel like, I feel like the, um, the more could have been done to, to combat some of the, the misunderstandings that are being pushed out there around beef cattle being bad. But it is one of those things that we need to be better at communicating the facts of our industry and the production systems and the health benefits. And I think you've just hit the nail on the head. Well, thank you. And I'd like to do more on it. Um, the, it's, it's just not that simple. Um, it's not that simple as like do away with the livestock and oh, and then and then the carbon emission problem is gone. It's just so much more complex than that. There's so many more nuances in how to grow a, a beef cow. Like, um, so it's the management of the cattle. It's not the cattle themselves that are that are that can be problematic. Uh, There's also got to be a consistent way of measuring these things too. A consistent way of of, of measuring the different uh, emissions and that sort of thing. So it's it's equal across all of the different uh, areas that they're trying to compare us to. Yeah, and the measurement is. I think really flawed still. So it's not easy to, to measure carbon emissions. I mean, it's it's invisible and it's happening constantly everywhere all the time. It's a pretty tough one to measure, so it's no surprise. But if you think about it from first principles, about a cow wandering around a paddock eating grass, and and the same applies for the carbon emission argument and also for the water use and also pollution. Uh, yeah, if you manage cattle badly, you can you can burn up soil carbon as well as the methane emissions that that animal may produce uh you can pollute the water supply and use too much sure if you manage them badly but if you've got grass-fed animals grazing on a paddock all of the water they're drinking is being like 99.9 percent of the water they're drinking is being delivered directly back to the soil that they're standing on and irrigating the pasture um if the stocking rates are right and ground cover is maintained the manure is is contained and is part of a biological fertility cycle it's magic you're putting carbon back in the soil and nutrients as long as it's not going in the river and then out into the ocean. So that's a different matter. It's not a simple matter of just like doing away with the cows and then the carbon emission problem is going to go away. Well, that because then you're also going to have to feed people. So you're going to have to clear a hell of a lot of land to grow a hell of a lot of crops with a hell of a lot of water, wouldn't you? Absolutely. 
And so I asked you a bit earlier about um, regenerative and organic and um, holistic, and I think we went off on a little bit of a tangent. So I just want to bring you back around to um, to talk a bit more about the difference between organic and regenerative farming, because there's quite a lot of conversation about that on a national level at the moment. Yeah, well, I mean, that's a tough question. So the difference between organic and regenerative, um, wherever I can find published the sort of the principles and aims of, uh, of regenerative farming and organic farming, they're basically identical um, at that principle and aim level. There are environmental aspects. There's healthy soil, healthy plants, healthy animals, healthy humans uh, element to it. There's um, animal welfare aspects often and generally leaving the land in uh, better condition than, than you found it is, is throughout the principles and aims of, of both of these terms where you can find it. But the difference between organic and regenerative is that organic farming actually has a definition, a very clear definition that's in Australia is in our national standard for organic and biodynamic produce. Uh, but even internationally, it's very well agreed upon what organic means. But with regenerative, uh, as I said, the, the principles and aims are, sound identical. Um, and I'm thrilled to see that it's getting a lot of coverage because it seems in the media and uh, and on social media and so on, people are talking about farming methods and better farming methods. So that's great. I love it. But at the moment, we it's hard to compare the two because we don't have a definition for one of them. And it reminds me a little sadly of when I was at university and the, the buzzword back then was sustainable, sustainable farming. Um, and sustainable now or sustainability, it's almost lost its meaning. So it was a big buzzword. So what do you mean? How has it lost its meaning? When you say that, what exactly do you mean? Yeah, well, as to demonstrate it, you often hear people say, uh, oh, this is more sustainable than that. And so it's like, well, is it more sustainable or is it sustainable? Because you can't be half sustainable. You either are or you aren't. So I feel like sustainable was a big buzzword. Um, but then it sort of got watered down to the point now where it means very little. And and I see how regenerative, just from a basic, uh, uh, an ordinary person's understanding definition, that it's uh, not only sort of maintaining, but it's improving. So it has elements of improving the farm built into it, which is great. But it seems like in Australia, there are some farmers who identify as regenerative who are also certified organic. And there are others who also continue to use glyphosate and, and synthetic nitrogen fertiliser. And so it's it's where do you draw the line? Are you frustrated because of the lack of definition around it and there's a, there's crossover where there shouldn't be? Or are you frustrated because um, it hasn't reached its, the potential of what it should be? Oh, I'm not... I wouldn't even um, say that I'm frustrated. I think it's great that people are talking about better farming methods. That's cool. I just think there is this really confused sort of space where we're not really sure what it means. Does it mean almost organic? Does it mean organic plus more? Um, and then there's some there's some people who want to, who are talking about writing a standard for it. And then I'm thinking, well, we already have one. It's called the organic standard. Like we did this 40 years ago and, and we keep it up to date. So there's standards, organic standards uh, are developed constantly around the world um, and anyone can contribute to that development process. Uh, but at least we know 
you know, and oh well, and and the U.S. standard, for instance, is a little bit different to our standard, the U.S. organic standard, the National Organic Program over there. It is, it is actually a little bit different to ours, but they're so similar that it's close enough in terms of talking about what it means to be organic. Um, and to focus on the U.S. example, uh, regenerative over there now does have a definition, and it over there it's organic plus more, because there was in the United States. Uh, a concern among consumer and trade groups that organic livestock weren't getting outside enough. The daily pasture access was not well defined in the USDA National Organic Program. And they tried to fix it over the years with, with a supplement that was called the, the pasture rule. And it worked reasonably well, but there's still a problem in the United States from the point of view of some consumers and trade groups that organic wasn't wasn't achieving the animal welfare and the, the animal outdoor access free range elements enough. And also the other issue that they were concerned about was the social element. So the, the US organic standard doesn't include anything about the issue was sort of you know, illegal cheap labour. But so, so over there, there's now a certification program and it's, it's USDA National Organic Program certified plus more, plus daily outside access for livestock and some social stuff, labour stuff. But in Australia, our organic standard already requires daily outdoor pasture access. And in Australia, we have strong labour protection laws. So I'm not seeing the need for... It's not obvious to me what the need in Australia for, for this... Or well, certainly for not for another certification program, according to Regenerative. It's, it's reinventing the wheel, in my opinion. We, we already have it. It's called the organic standard. And there's an existing really good understanding among consumers. There's often a market premium or additional market access already. So you don't have to promote a new word. But, yeah, I, I'm happy to be proved wrong on that. You know, if Regenerative ends up being a, a gateway, a stepping stone toward organic, then great. Uh, or if it ends up being even an even higher standard, then great. But I haven't seen that in Australia. It's, it seems to be more of a stepping stone, perhaps. But as I said, there's, from our point of view, we, we don't allow in organic certified operations the use of highly soluble synthetic fertilizers, for instance, or glyphosate, for instance. And, and I do see out there uh, quite a few farmers who, who say they're regenerative and they're still using those products. So, so it's not certified, it's not compliant for organics. So that's simple. Okay, so we're here because of Beef Australia and the fabulous expo that it is. And I understand this is going to be your first time around. Yeah, and I'm really excited. I, I hope that uh, that uh, there are no travel restrictions and I can get up there to, uh, especially the trade show. That's probably the thing that I'm mostly interested in and just um, speaking to speaking to other farmers. I actually, And it's just going to be a big smorgasbord for you because there's so much beef. Uh, I imagine on... there'll be plenty of beef on the menu. Yeah, yeah. I look forward to that too. <laughs> and I guess, you know, um, yeah, well, we all do and it's, it smells delicious for any number of reasons for the whole week. But, you know... Everyone that I have on the podcast, I ask about what their favourite cut is. And I feel like I can't ask you that because, you know, you're, you're eating a lot of meat all the time for breakfast, lunch and dinner. So instead, can we just mix it up a little bit? And what, how, do you, how do you choose a, a meat-based diet when you're eating three times a day predominantly meat? Is there a breakfast meat and a lunch meat? I only ever really do one or two meals a day. And it usually involves around about um, between five and eight hundred grams of beef, and um, some egg, and maybe some organ meats as well, like some lamb's liver or 
and, and maybe something from the ocean, like some caviar or mussels or something. And so usually one big plate of that, about a kilo a day, is is what I eat. Oh my goodness, that's delicious, but a lot. <laughs> that's a big. That's a big meal. Yeah, but. It's working. Yeah. Um, well, you can't yeah, argue I'm, with that, I'm can you? I'm and fitter and sharper than I've ever been. And, I've just, and I'm 40 now, so yeah. <laughs> so where do you, when you're, because I imagine it would all be organic too. So how do you go about sourcing um, organic meat and um, seafood products where you are? It's not always organic, sadly. Um, I always try to go for grass-fed. Um, and I just can't get organic all the time. When I was living up near Byron Bay, there's a great butcher there that did organic all the time. And so it was organic scotch fillets and organic sirloins and organic beef mints was the main thing. Now, where I live now on the mid-north coast of New South Wales, um, there are a couple of good butchers around, but not always able to get organic, sadly. But still, I really prefer grass-fed. Um, the flavour, when it's grain-finished, I tend to not like as much. Funnily enough, it's, I can get organic from the supermarket, um, so I do that when I can, but I also like to support the local butchers uh, where I can, and they usually have some interesting cuts or you know, something's good or something's not as good that week, which, which keeps the diet, which is fairly th- uh, consistent, it keeps it a bit more interesting. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, because well, butchers are tremendous for any number of reasons, but tapping into that knowledge of where it's come from and what's good this week and what's a particularly tasty beast that's come through, that's always a bit special. Yeah, I love it. It's fantastic. We need to bring the butchers back to every small town in in the country. <laughs> well, well, I feel like that's a good project for you. Off you go, Owen. I'm sure you'll <laughs> have a great time doing that. I'll try. Right. Well, there you go. Well, I'm hoping that you get plenty of um, conversations off the back of this, Owen, and you've certainly given everyone some food for thought. But we might wrap it up there for today. And um, thank you so much for your time. Thanks very much for having me, Jane. No worries. We'll see you. At, we'll see you at Beef. See you there. Beef Australia is proudly supported by our principal partners. Thanks to the Australian Government Department of Agriculture, Water and the Environment, the Queensland Government, Meat and Livestock Australia and the Rockhampton Regional Council. Thanks for listening. You can hit subscribe to make sure you don't miss any of our episodes. And if you are enjoying listening to the show, we would appreciate a quick rating and review. Visit beefaustralia.com.au for more information on this great event.